Sales is King, episode 56. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Sales is King. This is Dan Sixsmith. I am your host. Happy to be with you. Welcome to all of our listeners. Welcome to new listeners. Welcome to our returning and loyal followers. If you are new, this is Sales is King, and we talk about the brutal truth that is affecting salespeople today. We talk about the new landscape, what buyers are looking for from salespeople. We also talk about marketing and how marketing and sales can work together. We hear from experts in the field of sales and marketing. And today we've got a great episode with an excellent interview from a good friend of mine, Peter Horst, who is a Fortune 500 CMO. And he is currently the author of a tremendous book that you guys need to check out called Marketing in the Fake News Era. And it is a great read and it is really an eye-opener in terms of what brands need to do today in a very volatile landscape. So um, we are going to take a little bit of a marketing angle today. We will also talk about marketing and sales, of course. But Peter Horst has a great track record in leading brands to successful growth over the years. And we talk about some very interesting topics that are facing both marketers and sales today both in a B2C focus and a B2B focus. So let's get into the interview and we'll catch up soon. Hey everybody, welcome back to Sales is King. Dan Sixsmith here, I'm your host, and I am excited to be with my good friend, Peter Horst. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, it's great to be here, Dan. Yeah, so Peter and I uh, go back, actually we started our careers together uh, back yeah, a couple of years ago. Um, in uh, a law firm. We were both corporate paralegals, and uh, we've obviously uh, gone in different directions than law, but um, it was great to kind of start our careers together, and we certainly had a lot of fun, didn't we? Yes, we did. It's, uh, it, it's hard to believe how many years it's been, and, and I, I sometimes think back to our days uh, and, and shudder a little bit, <laughs> what we were doing back there, but it was yeah. a great learning experience. I think we both decided we did not want to go to law school after yes. that, so take from yes. that, if you will. Nor do I think we, maybe, I'm not sure if I'd get a reference from those guys. <laughs> yeah. <but laughs> yeah, I don't know if the field of law lost anything <laughs> by us moving on, but uh, oh, <laughs> it was a good God. experience. Oh, man. So, um, for those of you who don't know Peter, he's a Fortune 500 CMO. Um, he has been a senior marketing leader in a number of really high-profile organizations, including Hershey and Capital One and Ameritrade. Um, he's got a great new book out that we're going to talk about. But I thought we'd talk and start a little bit about, um, you know, the changing landscape in marketing and sales today. And certainly from a marketing perspective, you know, how do we, what are some of the key challenges that a senior leader like yourself is wrestling with in terms of marketing? Sure. I think one of the biggest challenges that pretty much every marketing leader in every organization that I know of is struggling with is one that links marketing and sales. And that's the question of marketing accountability. The issue of, okay, the board, the company gave me $5 million, $10 million, $100 million to spend, and here's what I did, and what did we get for it? 
how can I confidently, incredibly tell a story that says, you know, I did these activities and it drove these results, this amount of sales, this amount of brand lift. And it really, it puts marketers in harm's way uh, because they're, they're not able to tell that story particularly well for the most part. So it becomes sort of a Monday morning quarterbacking, second guessing exercise. Um, and a lot of people sort of quibbling and pointing fingers. And when there's not enough growth, well, is it the sales organization that's not selling enough? Is it the marketing organization that's not driving enough in the way of leads or, or you know, uh, an attractive enough offer? Um, and it becomes a bunch of opinions. So, you know, it's interesting how the more sophisticated we get in terms of analytics and technology and marketing mix, in some ways, the less we feel we know and the less confident we are in the answers. Um, so, that, you know, that, that's a really huge one. And, you know, I've, I've recently been involved in a thing called the Forbes Marketing Accountability Project, where um, about a year ago, you know, Forbes took the lead on saying, let's, let's attack this thing and conducted some really cool research with about... I don't know, 500 or more uh, marketing leaders um, really diving into how do we develop some standard best practices for, you know, knowing what marketing activity drove what in the way of sales. Um, so it's something that, you know, a lot of good work has been done, but boy, does that remain a big thorny problem for everybody. Yeah, it really is. And even with, um, you know, for example, like you think about, you know, something like how does a, a digital activity drive foot traffic in, in, into a store, you know, how do you even come up with that? You know, how can you track yeah. that? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that um, because another thing I got involved with recently is um, uh, the CETO Institute for Location Data. Um, basically, you know, it's a group of companies, again, coming together to say, hey, we now have the capability um, through mobile devices of, in a much more granular way, understanding where are people going and what are they doing and connecting the dots so that you can now say, all right, this, you know, human being, not obviously, you know, it's anonymized, but, you know, we know that a person saw this video and went to this website and now we know they also walked into the store. So you can start to say, all right, we're, 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 we're connecting foot traffic and visits with marketing activities. Um, so again, getting there, a lot, a lot more work to be done. Um, and that's really the holy grail. It's really getting a picture because, you know, it goes back to that famous John Watermaker quote from, what, 150 years ago or something? Half of my advertising waste, I don't know. Well, we still don't know which half. Um, <laughs> but, but we're kind of getting there. Yeah, keep spending more. Yeah. Keep coming up with more buzzwords. So I asked in our last interview, um, you know, one of the things we hear so much is that marketing and sales um, needs to work more closely together. Yeah. Uh, quote, unquote, alignment you know, what have you seen or what do you, how, how can this happen better? You know, does it start with the, the senior leadership? You know, do you need a, a strong CEO that can pull everybody together? But what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great issue. And it extends, you know, to many different connections across the, the C-suite, you know, CMOs and CIOs needing to work together, chief sales officers and, and marketing officers working together. So I think there's a, you know, that's part of a general theme of we just got to get more borderless, more connected, more one team. Um, and the way the speed of business, the way businesses operate now with so many functions getting so blurred, um, the traditional old org chart really just gets in the way of that. 
Um, specifically with sales and marketing, you know, it's interesting. You, you do see some organizational moves that seem designed to go after that. So you see things like chief revenue officer, chief growth officer <clears throat> that pulls together marketing and sales. Um, you know, Chobani is an example, recently pulled together analytics, sales, and marketing uh, to, I think they call it, you know, demand creation. So just to say everything that's about pulling people in the door, making the cash register ring, all that stuff, put it together so that there's no finger pointing, no, you know, sort of back and forth or uh, competition. So that's certainly one way to go. It's not always practical. And, um, you know, it takes a, a real talented leader to be able to do all that. Um, so I think short of making a big structural change like that, you know, it really comes down to culture, to chemistry, to personal relationship, um, and getting to this idea of, you know, we both have one shared objective, which is, you know, feet in the door, butts in seats, you know, share wallet, whatever it is. Um, and we're, we're coming at it from different directions, but there is only one success. There's no such thing as the sales team kicking butt and the marketing team, you know, flaking out, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, or we didn't, but how can you get to, you know, really a shared scorecard and a shared set of metrics and push that down to the teams and model that behavior at the top so that they can see the two leaders completely joined at the hip. Um, and that it doesn't become sort of, you know, uh, a boxing match as you move down the organization. Yeah. And finger pointing and all that. Yeah. It gets you know, totally unproductive. Cultural, yeah. Cultural disruption. So then the other issue that, you know, so you, you want to do this successfully, but then all we hear about are the tenures of, for example, the CMO comes in and the average tenure is whatever it is, you know, uh, I don't know what it is now, two and a half years. I'm not sure what it's gotten to. So, you know, I was reading an article, a McKinsey article that was saying, you know, some of these successful transformations, they're looking much further down the road. They're looking, you know, rather than quarter to quarter, they're looking a year out. Some of them are looking three years out. And I'm saying to myself, how can you do that when you got like the gun pointed at your head and you know that you got to do something, you know? So what do you think about that? Oh, it's, it, you're, you hit the nail on the head. And I think a certain amount of that short tenure comes back to where we started with this whole issue of, okay, we gave you all this money, what'd you get for it? And at the first sign of something not working, you know, missing growth targets, fire the marketing guy, get a new one, because, you know, right. he must be the problem. Right. Um, so it, it's a huge issue. So you've got this sort of dilemma of, you're right, any, any significant transformation, whether it's digital transformation or customer centricity or, you know, whatever it might be, um, takes time. And yet there you are under the gun. Um, so it's one of those terrible catch-22s of, of corporate life. But in particular, why the CMO role is, you know, I think the most frequently fired and, and has the shortest tenure of anything in the C-suite. Um, so I think it comes to, you know, as so many things do, to that balance of short-term, long-term. So how do you make it clear, this is where we're going, this is the long-term vision, um, break that down into milestones so people can see progress along the way, but also, you know, have a share of sexy, you know, short-term wins so that people feel good about, you know, you're making things happen, I see numbers being posted. Yes, that big transformation is still, you know, three years down the road, but I feel it. I feel the momentum. I see the credible metrics being ticked off along the way. 
but it's really hard to sell a promise for three years without wins along the way. So you know? Yeah, so true. No one's going to buy into that. Yeah, yeah. Heads will be rolling uh, throughout the organization. So, you know, the other issue that I hear a lot about is, you know, with, first of all, it's just such a cluttered marketplace, you know, cluttered for fighting for attention, you know, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, how do you, how do you break through as a brand, number one, and then number two, how do you differentiate, you know, so it's like, um, you know, what are, what are some of the things you've seen with successful yeah. brands that are able to do that? Yeah, no, it's so true. It, I mean, there are so many choices now <clears throat> that are so accessible, um, you know, in a store or online, and it, it really becomes overwhelming. And in some ways, it's not that there are new tricks, but the good old rules become that much more important. And if you think about, you know, one, one of the notions of why brands are important is it's a simplifier, it's a shortcut. It helps you, you know, sort of, as a consumer, um, fight through the clutter and simplify the choices in front of you. So, you know, it just raises the ante on all the um, you know, important blocking and tacking, tackling of building a brand. <clears throat> and one of the places where I see brands so often go wrong is right at the beginning, that first insight. You know, what is it their, their, their brand positioning um, is gonna be based on? And it's, there's gotta be some really interesting, I call it a catalyzing insight um, that serves as the basis for that. And that's where it's really easy to get lazy. It's really easy to become uh, sort of, you know, a victim of wishful thinking, you know, dressing up strategy as, as an insight. So, you know, I remember uh, when I first got to Hershey, one eager young brand manager said, hey, we're pivoting this brand to, to uh, millennials and it's going to be really cool. And here's the insight. It's I like sweet and salty and wish I could have both. And so then we're going to go blah, 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 blah. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. dial it back. Right. The insight is I like sweet and salty and wish I could have both. I mean, that sounds like, you know, a brand manager, you know, sitting in his cube going, man, wouldn't it be great if people said this, right? But I'm sure no millennial ever sat around and had that thought in their head. Right. right. So, you know, how do you get to something that's a revealing, interesting, penetrating insight, usually that, 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 that you know, shows some tension um, that is then relevant to the brand that you can deliver on. But without that, you're not going to be setting off the imaginations of whether it's product developers or your, your marketing team to generate, you know, marketing ideas and selling ideas against this thing. Um, if there isn't that kind of just, you know, powerful um, uh, catalyzing insight at the start. So, that, and then I think, you know, y you've really got to come up with a brand idea that's got some magnetic power, that's got some, some edge to it um, and that goes beyond kind of the simple classic, you know, expected moves. And, you know, I'll, I'll use one of my favorite examples that, you know, we've seen a lot recently, but Airbnb, right? If you think about, okay, their product is you can rent apartments and homes, whatever, you know, not a hotel, a lot of different ways you go in terms of how you position that thing. And it could be cheaper than a Hilton or more comfortable or more room or more choices or, you know, Lots of stuff you could talk about. Mm -hmm. But what they centered on was belong anywhere, right? The idea of, I don't just want to go to Paris and visit Paris. I want to become part of Paris. I want to 
be a Parisian and experience it in a really very different way than you'd get going to a hotel room that could be in Paris or Cairo or Cleveland and you'd never know the difference. Right. And that's just, you know, so that sits on a really cool insight that people have this urge more and more to really experience things and that investing money and time on an enriching experience is a whole, is a real driver. And, you know, they turned that into a two word brand promise, incredibly efficient, but incredibly powerful belong anywhere. There's so much that goes on in that and it goes on to their diversity thing. Um, What's also cool about it is it then sets up the opportunity to sell more stuff, but in a very on-brand way. So you could imagine, you know, they could sit there and say, all right, great, we sold you, you know, a trip to California. Now let's sell you tickets to, you know, the Lakers, right? Well, that's just throwing stuff, you know, on the shelf that ultimately waters down the brand. Instead, holding on to that thought of belong anywhere, they now say, hey, we can sell you a surfing lesson with a Malibu surfer dude as a part of really immersing yourself in that local, you know, very authentic experience. So they got a whole, you know, concentric circle wider from that core, but still totally on brand, still totally true to that promise. So powerful insight, powerful brand promise. And then I think you've, you've got to be sort of courageous um, and a little bold in terms of how you market. And, you know, I remember a, a crusty old, you know, mentor years ago who with coffee breath and nicotine stained teeth would say, you know, if you're not making someone in the executive suite nervous with your advertising, you're probably not doing your job. Um, but, you know, to resist the temptation to do stuff that's safe and expected and offends no one under any circumstances, but, you know, to do something that's really got, you know, a point of view and an edge and maybe does, you know, make your palms a little bit sweaty because then it's going to be memorable. Then it's going to be something that sticks with people. Yes, there might be some people who say, wow, that's really not for me. That's a little too out there. And, you know, I think back to my Capital One days where the number of banking executives who would say, okay, now that we're a, you know, top 10 bank, we're not going to do any of that dumbass advertising with Visigoths and goats and chickens. And it's like, well, actually, you know, let me show you. I know your golfing buddy says it's stupid, but here's all these other people who remember our ads three times as much as a chase ad. So, you know, that's money in the bank right there. Um, yeah, so to, to be sell. courageous and bold with what, how you execute. Yeah. And it's a tough sell internally because, you know, uh, people have kind of a status quo bias and they're risk averse and they like to keep things, you know, uh, yeah. kind of, you know, keep me out of the, the crosshairs, which kind of leads us to your book. Um, Marketing in the Fake News Era is a fantastic book. I recommend it to everybody listening and watching. Um, it is really enjoyable and it's super insightful. So, um, which kind of leads us to, you know, brands and their, quote, responsibility in and around environmental and social issues. Um, tell me a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the book and yeah, how, you, yeah, how long it took to write, et cetera. Sure. Well, you know, so I've been managing brands one way or another in various categories from CPG to financial services to technology for something like, I hate to say it, 30 years. And I've certainly seen my share of tough environments, whether that's, you know, people saying, hey, your granola bars contain coconut oil and that's terrible, or everybody hating banks back in, you know, 2008. Um, but I've never seen anything like this environment where they're just, you know, 
pick up a newspaper any day of the week and there's likely some brand in there who's got a hashtag boycott going or who's under fire for something the CEO did or didn't do or the employee did. Um, so it's become this pressure cooker environment with a lot of, you know, sort of new risks. And so I started looking at that and, and gave a talk on it and then was asked to give that talk again. And the more, you know, time went on, the more it seemed like this is a big issue that's really here to stay. So I dove in and, and, and wrote the book. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, good news for the book, bad news for the country. It seems to only be gathering steam, not, not sort of getting quieter. Um, but, you know, th what's going on is there, there are a number of different kind of a perfect storm of forces going on. You've got a huge crash in trust, right? People have lost trust at record levels in government and media and business. Um, you've got rampant polarization um, across, you know, Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, urban, rural, conservative, you know, liberal, every possible way. You've got this sort of tribalization where people are kind of retreating to the bosom of people that look and feel like them and that feel under attack one way or another. Um, and in the midst of all this, you have consumers more and more expecting companies to step in and play a role, right? They're kind of saying, the world's broken, I'm worried about where it's going, and I don't think government's gonna be fixing it anytime soon, so okay, corporate America, step up, step in. Mm -hmm. So it creates an opportunity for brands to have a much deeper relationship with customers on the basis of you know, these values, but it's also a risk, right? It, you, you run the risk of offending half the country or you run the risk of trying to do something and stubbing your toe terribly and getting it wrong, like the, the dreaded Pepsi Kendall Jenner ad mm. that uh, got so much you know, blowback. Mm -hmm. um, so it becomes a really dicey environment. And it's not even as though you can play it safe and say, I'm just gonna sit on the sidelines because now silence is considered a choice. And many people say silence is complicity, right? If you're not speaking up, then you must like whatever it is I'm unhappy about. And uh, so, you know, in the book, I, you know, after talking with lots and lots of marketing leaders and PR experts and academics, you know, just came up with some thoughts and frameworks on how companies can find their way through this and find their authentic voice and make choices about how much to engage or stay quiet. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So, um, you know, so how, if you're a brand, you know, and I know you have some good examples, but how do you determine which issues you should kind of latch on to, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, so is it kind of focused more on who do we think are, are, demographic is you know or what they would be you know what would be resonating with them or how do you how do you just even start yeah it's a really critical issue because that's one of the places where companies go wrong right is they latch on to an issue that maybe they don't have an authentic connection to or yeah maybe they have a connection because they care about it but they don't have really permission to go there so you have to kind of triangulate and what i suggest is you start by looking internal. And in a lot of ways that fights what we learn as sales and marketing people, you know, understand your customer, begin with the customer. Here, I think it's important to start internally and say, what do we really believe as, whether it's founders or owners or leadership, um, and importantly employees, because they're becoming an important factor, but what are the values and beliefs that we hold dear and would stand up for if necessary? 
and first understand that. And if it's like, hey, we don't give crap about anything, well, you know, maybe that tells you something. Um, but you start with that, and then at least you kind of have a good framework to then start the next triangulation step, which is to say, you know, what are the issues that are really important to our constituents, whether that's customers, partners, um, you know, others who have a stake in our um, business and our, our sort of future. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what are the places we have permission to go, right? So in the case of Pepsi, um, the issue of race relations and police violence in the African com- American community is certainly an important issue to many, if not all. Um, but what relationship does a can of soda have with that issue, right? You know, and it's not clear. And it's a big enough issue that, you know, maybe you don't need a direct connection, but they just sort of stepped into it without, um, you know, having the proper sort of sensitivity to how to approach that issue. So that's one where, you know, yeah, it's important to your customers. It may be part of your belief system, but were you the right brand to be stepping into that? So that's kind of the third leg of that stool to make sure it's an appropriate issue for you to get into. Yeah, and then, you know, the other interesting thing I, I, I learned in the book was, you know, how, how, how can you be prepared if you're um, unknowingly sucked into um, an issue? Right. Um, and I know you reference a couple of different brands, but, um, you know, uh, there, are, there are examples of brands just be, being caught uh, unaware. You know, the Tiki Lamp thing was one yeah. you mentioned. And, you know, so what, what, how do brands, you know, prepare for something like this? Yeah, it's, um, and, and, you know, although I would never say there's one answer for all brands, you know, every brand must go out and say, I love Trump or I hate Trump or I'm for immigration or against, um, you know, different brands will have different considerations for how forward leaning they get on these issues. But the one thing I would say everybody has to do is go through that first introspective thought process I talked about, you know, about understanding what are the values and issues we care about because we can't count on being able to sit on the sidelines and not speak up. It might be that events will pull us into the spotlight. It could be the president, you know, tweeting about you. It could be an employee on, you know, a Friday afternoon in Philadelphia making a really bad call with the customer. Um, It could be any number of things that force you, you know, onto the playing field. And if you don't have, you know, ready at your fingertips, here's our beliefs, here's our positions, here's what we would say, then you're going to be scrambling. And you just don't have time in this digital, you know, world to do focus groups and have executive sessions and think through things. You know, a great example is the NFL. Mm -hmm. When the uh, kneeling issue began, what, close to two years ago, right? They had no collective response. There was no set of shared values that would lead them to say, hey, we support what Colin Kaepernick and others are doing um, and go for it. Or, you know, we understand what you're doing, but because of these other values and beliefs, we're going to ask you to do that in another way. Silence, (coughs) excuse me, which allowed others, including the president, to take over the narrative and say, all right, the players are being disrespectful. They hate the first responders. The NFL is weak and rudderless. And, you know, a year and a half later, they come up with a policy that ends up pleasing no one and, you know, again, it wasn't based in values and beliefs. So, you know, you, you just can't be unprepared 
um, with what it is you, you stand for. And, you know, a, a reason why this is so important is it's brand risk, right? When something like that NFL crisis happens, that is potential long-term damage to the brand. And most companies probably don't appreciate how valuable their brand is. And there, again, this, uh, some research that came out in this Forbes work was that on average, the companies studied 19% of total company value is the brand. Now, consumer-facing company like uh, Miller Coors might be 50% of the value of the company is that brand. So anything that, that you know, causes a hit on that can be just huge in terms of dollars and cents. So to leave yourself unprepared for that kind of eventuality is just irresponsible. Yeah, it really is. Do you see any um, new roles being created to, to manage this? Or is this, who typically is, is this the CMO's role? Is this the PR? Is, who, who is in charge of being prepared for a social or proactive on a social? Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's an awesome question because it goes right back to what we talked about earlier around the org chart just doesn't really work in this kind of environment. So the lines between PR and social and customer service and marketing all get so blurred. Um, so, you know, I think anyone can take up the mantle of leadership to say, hey, this is something we need to do. Um, so whoever's got the energy and vision and charisma and that could come from any function really, but it's going to involve things like PR and marketing and probably, you know, sales depending on the, uh, the, the company. Um, you, but you, to your question specifically, you know, I have seen some interesting new roles crop up. I think it was, uh, might've been Unilever or, no, Mars, I'm sorry, Mars, um, who just announced a new title and it was something like chief purpose officer. Hmm. Um, but, you know, there's, you do see more and more either specific titles or accountabilities being created around how are we going to articulate and steward a broader sense of organizational purpose that becomes kind of the center of gravity for all of this thinking and activity. Yeah, it really is um, interesting. And it comes back down to this whole notion of risk, you know, and I, I love what you said about really, you know, staying on the sidelines is actually a risk. You know? It is, yeah. Um, yeah. You really need, it sounds like bold leaders, um, you know, to come in and be able to kind of chart this course um, are there any, you know, metrics, I guess, I'm just curious, you know, for what, and I, I think you put them in the book, on what the, either the poor handling or, or the good handling of, of an issue can do for the brand or an organization? Is there anything measurable yet on that? Um, you know, there are different ways to look at it. <clears throat> and, you know, one thing I think, you know, organizations should do is be, as a part of being prepared is to have the right kind of um, radar systems and measurement systems around their brands so they can see signs of trouble brewing. So, you know, some form of social analytics to where you can, if, if something's going on, whether it's an issue or a concern or a misperception, you, you can see it and track it and understand, you know, what are the thresholds where uh, got to call the home office, got to bring in the CMO, got to alert the board. Um, but an important complement to that is brand tracking because one thing you, another thing you don't want to do in this environment is overreact, right? Sometimes a little flash fire can occur on social media 
And, you know, those may not be your core customers. It might be an issue that will just die its own natural death. So don't fan the flames. You know, like when President Trump was tweeting about Ivanka's shoes being thrown out of Nordstrom, they very wisely just sort of sat that out. That didn't call for response because it came and it went and nothing happened. On the other hand, you know, uh, a, a, a doctor being bloodied and unconscious and dragged off an airplane, that's going to have some staying power because it's a, you know, it's viral, there's video. So you've got to jump in and respond to that. Right. And a part of that is looking at, is this having an effect on my actual brand metrics? So some form of tracking in near enough time that you can see, okay, there's noise on Twitter, but my brand favorability and my equities are holding steady. So right. you know, maybe that tells me something about how to respond. Yeah, you also um, mentioned the Under Armour example um, with the president's you know, business council and how yeah. you know, he had to do a, Kevin Plank had to do a little bit of a shift there when his yeah. uh, constituents <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. were basically saying, uh, you know, right. no mas. Well, and that, that, that's another interesting one where more and more employees are driving some of these choices yeah. by companies. And, you know, you see Google employees saying, hey, we don't want you selling AI to the military. Or Microsoft saying, you know, we don't want you selling software to ICE. Uh, the most recent one was McKinsey, you know, that, that actually Africa thing, right? canceled its ICE contract um, because of employees saying, you know, this doesn't match our values. Um, so especially in places where um, there's a competition for talent and, you know, you're trying, to, you're, you're competing with other companies to get the, these, these people, more and more they want to feel they're working at a place whose values matches their own. So they're going to be an important constituent um, in how companies decide where and how to weigh in. So true. So true. So this has really been enjoyable. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about how we can kind of find you, um, track you down on social or sure. you come in and speak or what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so my uh, marketing consultancy is called CMO Inc. And uh, you can find me at CMO Inc, CMOINC.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Peter Horst. And um, uh, I publish pretty regularly on Forbes. So any of those places, you know, come track me down. Would love to get your thoughts on this or any other issues on your mind. And um, uh, look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, great. Peter Horst, thanks so much. Stay on for a second. This is uh, Dan signing off for Sales is King. We will catch you next time. And 100% reason to remember the names. 10% and 20% skill. 15% concentrated power of will. Yeah. 5% pleasure and 50% pain. And 100% reason to remember the name.